Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Craig. Welcome to another episode of Football Kit Memories, the football podcast that gets under the shirt. Today, I meet Guardian Sport writer and editor, as well as host of the fans podcast, Sasha Nakrani. In our chat, we cover Sasha's long career at the paper he joined in 2007, how during that period his role has changed, and he pulls back the curtain on the process behind writing the obituary of the eternal Diego Maradona. Later, I ask Sasha to pick out his three favourite football shirts and tell me a little bit about what they mean to him. Clearly, the 90s represents the peak of Sashin's football shirt fandom, as his choices rather nicely span the full decade. Roger Miller's Cameroon kicks us off at Italian 90, Stan Collymore's Liverpool sees us through the half-time whistle, and the ref blows for full-time following Milan's Scudetto-winning Adidas and Opal Classic from 98 to 99. Remember, you can listen to this and other episodes of Football Kit Memories on all major audio platforms including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please do like, follow, share, but above all, please do enjoy the podcast. Okay, so today on the podcast, I'm joined by Guardian sports writer and host of the Fans Podcast. It's Sachin Nakrani. How you doing, mate? I'm very well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm delighted uh, you found the time to be on, mate. Really been looking forward to talking to you. My pleasure to be on. Thanks for asking. Um, so, so Sachin, there's, there's loads of stuff I wanted to talk to you about, but the first thing I kind of wanted to start on is that you're a writer and editor for Guardian Sport. What exactly does that entail? Uh, yeah, a bit of a jack of all trades, really. So I haven't got a, specific, I haven't got a very defined role. So, so go, well, I'll go back a fair bit. I joined the Guardian in uh, October 2007. Oh, wow, long time. Yeah, I've been there, what was that, 14 years? Coming up to, yeah, coming up to 14 years now. Um, so uh, I'd, worked, I'd worked in local papers up until that point for four years, having, having qualified as a, as a journalist in 2003. And I worked for three different local papers up until 2007, so sort of four-year period, I sort of moved, moved quite a lot. Right. Uh, always wanted to be a sports journalist, but was struggling to get in, and I, I was working as a news journalist, and then um, sort of giving up on being a sports journalist. And then a friend of mine told me that The Guardian had a, a sports trainee scheme where they, every year they took on a sports journalist. Okay. and gave him a chance and I thought well that sounds amazing so I applied for it not thinking I'd, I'd get it because you know I knew thousands of people would go for it and I was, uh, I was lucky enough to get it so my first year so essentially the 2007-2008 season 
Uh, I joined quite soon after that season started. I was just a full-time writer. They, was, they threw me at game, just covering Premier League football almost from the start, press conferences, doing interviews. I mean, it was just an amazing whirlwind experience for someone who up until that point had very little sports experience. I had a bit, yeah. a little bit of freelancing. I was working as a lo local news reporter, but not a lot. So it's absolutely unbelievable. And then um, sort of the, the autumn of 2008 came along and my contract was up. I was des and they took on the next trainee. Yeah, it was a lad called I mean, Mikey Stafford. Now he's an Irish lad. He now works now works in Ireland, back in Ireland. Uh, and my contract was up, so in theory I was out. Um, but I was desperate to stay. I, I loved it, so I kind of harassed the boss a bit to see if there's any chance of me staying. I knew he sort of was happy with me and thought I'd done well. Uh, so I got a job working as um in the, in the office basically as a sub editor. So instead of writing, I was I was reading copy and writing headlines and all that sort of stuff, which I didn't mind too much because it was a full time job at the Guardian. And I always thought, I just thought. Oh, you know, I'll keep sort of, you know, they know I can write. So if I keep coming up with ideas and volunteering to come and cover games, you know, I'll hopefully get a chance. And, and that sort of happened. And I was combining the two. And in a way, that's what my life's been ever since. Now I work on the main commissioning desk. Okay. So I do various roles. So um, I edit the, the actual print section of the paper. So if you see the, the sports pages in the paper, yeah. um, at least once a week, sometimes two, twice a week, sometimes more. I'll, I'll have edited those. I'll, I'll have decided what's the back page, what goes inside, how we present stories. Right. Uh, and often I'll work on the, just on the commissioning desk. So I'll come up with ideas for articles and I'll, and I'll liaise with the writers uh, over what to do. And um, yeah, once, once the articles come in, I'll read them and edit them and check them and stuff. Right. So various roles. And yeah, still sort of write. I don't write as much as I, as I used to. I used to have a real hunger for writing. But um, yeah, 14 years in now, I lost my enthusiasm for writing slightly. I, no specific reason. I just, I don't know. I don't know what you think about this, but I think there's, a, there's so much football journalism now. We just feel like every time I sort of Great. check Twitter, you know, during the day, there's, you know, there's about 800 articles doing the rounds. And my sort of mindset now is that unless I've got something fresh to offer the world, yeah, I just, I just, don't think there's any point. There's no point in me sitting down and writing an article about why, like, Ruben Diaz is the best centre back in the Premier League. There's like, you know, there's a million articles along those themes or whatever. So I think, unless I've got something especially unique I want to write, or, you know, I like doing interviews now. So I try and interview interesting people. Yeah. I interviewed a comedian, Tom Allen, uh, sort of, well, a few months ago now, who, after he'd done quite a funny stint on Soccer Saturday, doing a bit of, sort of that Chris Kamara role. Yeah, which I'd call on telly just before Christmas, I remember it was. And I'm big, I think Tom Allen's great as well. So I managed to hook up an interview with him, and that was great. And he was a lovely bloke, and, and the interview was well received. So if I can do something a bit different, a bit quirky, that's what I tend to do these days. But yeah, mainly working in the office, and which, yeah, I quite enjoy. Yeah. So one thing I was going to ask you about, I noticed that your, your byline was on the obituary for Diego Maradona last year with um, Sean. Yeah. And Uki Goni, uh, who's in Argentina, right, reporting from there. What's it like getting a gig like that, mate? Like, that's such well, an article to write, right? Yeah, well, yeah, well, there's a bit of a backstory about that. So I'm going to sort of pull the curtain back and allow you to, you know, uh, <laughs> sort of learn about one way we do things. And I'm sure this is the case at other newspapers as well. Um, so a while back, a few years ago, our former sports editor then, a guy called Owen Gibson, who, who's now sort of been... He used to be a writer and then he became our sports editor. Now he works on the main section of the paper. He, he sort of took me sort of to one side um, one day, this a few years ago, 2017, 2018, I think it was around that time, and said, look, we need to organise what, I mean, we call it quite sort of brut brutally, our death packages. And what that is, is articles we will run when sporting icons die. 
so you know certain absolutely world famous global really important sports people when they die you'll obviously you are going to do a lot of coverage on those people and you mm -hmm. want to kind of be ready because when the, you don't know when they're going to die and when they die you know you want to be able to have pieces that can that can go sort of you know within 24 hours and what if the writers that you want to write those pieces you know Barney Rone, Jonathan Liu or yeah you know Don McRae whoever what if they're not around or what we can't get in touch with them or and also when that person dies we want to get a story up as quickly as possible you know to say right. so and so has died so he, he basically tasked me with organizing it we had sort of a few bits in the system a few tributary bit you know pieces and whatever but it was all a bit it was all a bit kind of vague and, and not well organized so he sort of said can you organize it so that's what i did and so i sort of decided which icon we were going to do packages for yeah and i organized what we actually had and then I, I then I thought about what we actually want to have on each person and went about commissioning writers to write pieces you know when these legends leave us you know it's going to be a huge moment and we want to be ready to pay our own tribute to them and have really good writing really good articles really good sort of picture galleries on them really good bits of audio and, all, and visuals and all that stuff so anyway so to answer your question so yeah Maradona was on the list for obvious reasons you know yeah. arguably the greatest sort of all time and uh, so, you know, we had, you know, like, you know, Jonathan Wilson, who's obviously an expert on South American football, got him to write a, a fantastic tribute to him, which kind of then went to cold storage. Right. And we had a few other pieces, in, you know, in line as well. I think Scott Murray did something and what have you. And I wrote the news story. I took it on myself to write the news story that would go immediately on our website when Maradona died. Like it would just be ready to go. All you need to add is like the date and how old he was okay. and any other sort of bits we might that might have come out at that moment. Yeah. So again, I wrote I wrote it ages ago. I wrote it like 2018. That story, right? And it's just been sat in cold storage. And then I remember, weirdly, I was uh, sat home watching Batman Returns with my wife um, <laughs> you know, during lockdown. We were just kind of like we had both had a day off. It was like a Wednesday, I think. Yeah. And we were watching Batman Returns on, uh, you know, the one with uh, Danny DeVito, and Michelle Pfeiffer, and, and then I got like a message from my boss or something. I can't remember who saying. Diego, there's reports in Argentina that Maradona's died. Is your story ready to go? Right. And I was like, uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> so anyway, I sort of left the telly and went upstairs and went turned my laptop on and just checked the story and made sure it was all in decent shape and said, yeah, look, if those reports are true, this story's ready to go. All you need to add is, uh, you know, his age and, and stuff. It's ready, you know, because I was off that day, so I left it to the office. So, yeah, the, the stories were true. Uh, I remember sort of around the afternoon, the rumours were doing the rounds, and then by sort of early evening, it had been confirmed. I think that was right. And they launched the story. So, yeah, I had, um, you know, quite a long, extensive story. As soon as it was basically confirmed, yeah. up on the Guardian's website, saying Maradona died with my byline, which was obviously an amazing thing for me. And it got a lot of traffic and a lot of hits and, and comments. Yeah. And then Sean, who's actually the, like our news correspondent, he then, you know, once it then became a more fuller story, you know, reacting more to the on-day stuff with tributes from relevant people, famous people, and you know bits of news from Argentina. Sean sort of fed that in, and then as I said, there was an Argentinian journalist thing. They fed stuff in, so it became a sort of three byline piece. But the very first version that was on the website was yeah me from something I'd written a couple of years earlier. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, having been at the Guardian for a long time, you must have seen you know the, the print business in general, and you talked about the kind of competition, the level of kind of people that are writing articles about football. You also get like fan media and stuff. Things must have changed mm. a lot, I guess. You must have a lot of increased competition. Very much so, yeah. When I joined The Guardian in 2007, it was just the newspaper. I worked just for the newspaper. And I remember, it's, it's going to sound so funny now, but 
sometimes uh, everything you wrote was for the paper and it would get and it was you know for me as someone who trained as a newspaper journalist it was such a buzz to get an article in the in the guardian you know sports pages yeah. and occasionally you'd write something and it wouldn't make the paper like they'd run out of space or they just didn't decide it was you know quite good enough for paper or whatever and i remember like my, my editor would say uh, oh yeah, that, no, that's not going to make the paper, but we're going to put it on the website. And my sort of shoulders would drop. I mean, on the website because it was just this kind of thing that they, they didn't even—they were in a different building, you know, the web team. And there was kind of these gang of sort of twenty-year-olds that nobody, you know, these kind of kids that nobody knew about and didn't really care about. And they, you know, they had this thing called the website. And it's like, oh, it's going on the web. And it's mad to talk like that now, isn't it? And like in two thousand eight, we actually integrated. So the guys who ran the web, the sort of the web team came and sat with us and we became a kind of one unit. Yeah. And now, you know, 14 years or 13 years on, our approach is completely flipped. And the web is the thing and we write for the website and essentially the best things for the web, we take for the paper. Right. The paper's still important and we still pride ourselves on a beautiful looking paper in it and it still sells reasonably well. But there's been a massive shift to the internet and writing for the internet. And as you say, competitions increase. So we're not just going up against all of our traditional rivals like the Times and the Telegraph and the Mail. Yeah. Um, there's various. I mean, the Athletic has obviously been the big, the big mover and shaker, if you like, over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, Fan-specific sites as well, and, and other websites. You know, Football Three Six Five and other various sites, ESPN and stuff that you're competing with. So you're competing for a lot of eyeballs. Um, I mean, what's beautiful for me still is, you know. I, you know, I, I'm very proud to work for the Guardian. I love working for the Guardian, but after 14 years, it it sort of just becomes a job, and it's just like work. Yeah. But then you get like occasional reminders of what a big deal the Garden is, and like I, I like to tell you a little story. I mean, a few weeks ago, we commissioned a freelance rugby writer um, to to write a rugby piece for us, and uh, sort of she wrote it, she filed it. And then I sort of emailed her back to say, you know, thanks for the piece. Yeah, all, all good. I've made a couple of changes, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it's all good. And she was like, oh, great. And she's like, is it going in the paper tomorrow? I was like, yeah, yeah, it's going in the paper. She goes, I just can't believe it. Like, I'm going to have a piece in The Guardian. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you are. Yeah. And like, she was just so excited. And it sort of reminded me, it was like, yeah, people really, like, really care about being in The Guardian. Whereas for me, it's just work, you know. And yeah, yeah. so that's really special. And so I, I still think, even though we've got a lot of competition, or increased competition than we did 14 years ago when I joined. I still think we're a big deal, and we st we're still keeping well, well and truly keeping our head above water. Uh, and you know, we're still a title that a lot of people respect. So yeah, no, it's it's harder to kind of get eyeballs on your work, but I think ultimately we're still you know, we're still doing reasonably well. We're doing very well to be honest. Yeah. So uh, yeah, no massive problems from our point of view in that sense. It's a great brand, isn't it? A trusted brand, and it's just celebrated its 200th anniversary, isn't it, as well? So, yeah, very, yeah, very recently, yeah. Yeah, been around a long time. So, Sachin, as well as your work with The Guardian, you also run, or you're involved in a couple of podcasts as well. Um, Fans is a podcast I wanted to talk to you about. So, you speak to interesting people about their experiences as a football fan. You've had some amazing guests on there, like Andy Goldstein, David Padil, Kelly Cates. How did that all come about? Yeah, just a complete self self-made thing. So um, I've I got uh, maybe like yourself. I got you know I've big, I've got massively into podcasts over the last few years. Um, just really become a huge part of my life. I sort of have six, seven, eight on the go. Um, not like I don't listen to every episode of every podcast, you know. But you know I've always got two or three that I need to listen to, and a mix of football and sort of movie and comedy ones. They're sort of the big three. Yeah. 
uh, and I just love them. I, I run quite regularly, so I, I'll always listen to a podcast when I run. I listen to them pre-COVID. I used to listen to them on the way to work. I still go into the office occasionally, so I, I st I'm still doing that. But sometimes I just sit at home in where I'm sat now in my, in, my, in my spare room where I'm working from, and have one on with a you know with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or whatever. And I just love them. And um, I've done a bit of podcast hosting a few years back for other for other people. Okay. Um, uh, so and I'd been a guest on the occasional one and stuff. And but then I decided. Well, actually, in 2018, me and a friend of mine set up a comedy podcast. We're both sort of big sitcom fans. Okay. Um, it didn't last very long. Won't bore you the details, but yeah, it sadly didn't last very long. But I really got the bug for doing a podcast and I like, have my own podcast. And so when that fell, fell through, and that was in the summer of 2018, I decided I wanted to do so. I wanted to sort of get back on the horse and have my own. And I had to teach myself because when I was doing the comedy one with my, with my then mate, he did all the technical stuff. My job was kind of organizing guests and, and stuff, but he did all the technical work. So I didn't know how to edit an, a podcast and stuff. So sought advice from a few people and basically taught myself. I don't know. I mean, I use Audacity. I don't know what, what you use to edit on, but... GarageBand I use. I use GarageBand, yeah. Well, I, I started, yeah, look, two or three people because I'm, I'm just not very tech, tech savvy. So I sort of said to a few people, like, look, do you know a good program that's quite easy to use because I'm not really good with all the sort of tech stuff and like they all said audacity is the one for you and it was meant to be like my starter editing program I'm still using it because it's just so easy <laughs> and convenient and does the job so yeah if there's anyone listening to this um who's sort of thinking of going to podcast and use audacity to ed to edit and uh, record it's very easy to use um so yeah so I taught myself how to edit and, and produce bought all the kit relevant kit and stuff and then I started at one podcast with a friend of mine Lindsay called is this thing on and it's like a lifestyle podcast and basically involved us sitting in a pub and having a drink and a chat and with you know with people and yeah. that basically had to stop because of covid because obviously couldn't go into the pub anymore so then i was a, a bit of a loose end and i sort of didn't want to do a football podcast because i again like like with the, with the journalism i was like all bases seem to be covered and i thought unless i've got a really good idea i, I don't want to do anything and it's something that's a bit different and i've always loved fandom football fandom for me is my sort of real kind of buzz with football like some you know some people are well into sort of analytics and data and mm -hmm. others are into like transfer talk and you now we all have a bit of everything but you know certain you know, i think people have sort of think one thing they're really into i've always loved football fandom you know yeah. I, I consider myself a match goer and a fan more than a journalist a football journalist right. and i love kind of people's origin stories of why they support the team they support and you know, the, the games that mean the most to them and the sort of the funny moments they've had at grounds or watching their team and the players that mean the most to them and the players they hate the most and all that stuff. And then it just dawned on me, I thought, I think there probably is a podcast out there where people talk about football fandom, but I don't know of any. And certainly not one, not the idea I had, which is I thought, I just want to do a podcast where it's a long interview. I sit down, you know, one person, we talk for an hour, an hour, hour and a half, and ask them quite simply, you know, tell me about supporting your team. Why do you support your team? Yeah. Uh, how does it change over the years? Favorite, you know, memories and favorite players, games and memories. And we do a thing at the end, we're asking to pick an all-time eleven, and and then there's like a final question, which has actually changed. Um, I've changed it a couple of times. And I thought there probably is, you know, there probably is a podcast very similar because there's about 800 million podcasts out there. But I thought I don't know of one, and even if there's another one like this. 
there's probably not many. And so, yeah, I just embarked on it. And I started last August and I've done 16 episodes. I sort of break them up into groups of eight. I call them, you know, grandly call them series. So I've, done, <laughs> I've just finished series two, yeah. uh, which is really good with a couple of American fans from like US football fandom, you know, what it's like to support a Premier League team from the US, yeah. which is good. And as you say, I've, had, I've been lucky enough to have some great guests on. I had, um, yeah, Kelly Cates talking about being a Scotland fan. Mm. Uh, and she's lovely. She was great. David Badil talking about being a Chelsea fan. That was, yeah, that was, I can't, couldn't quite believe I pulled that off, actually. I just thought, you know what, I'll send his agent an email. I thought this won't happen. And then she got back to me quite soon saying, yeah, David's up for it. So that was amazing. Nice. You know, sort of real icon of my youth, you know, growing up in the 90s, watching fantasy football and three lines and all that stuff. And then, yeah, Andy Goldstein, uh, talking about Man, Man United. He's a lovely bloke. Yeah, a bit, quite a bit of banter back and forth in that episode, given I'm a Liverpool yeah, yeah. fan, but he, he was great. And, but it's not just them. It's not just kind of the big names, if you like. I've spoken to people who, are, you know, people may not have heard of, but I'm, you know, I think what I'm quite good at with that podcast is sourcing good guests. Mm-hmm. And every single person has been brilliant. And, and they might be not particularly well known, but once, you know, what I can guarantee to anyone listening to fans is once you give it a go, every single person you, you hear will be interesting or funny or witty or just have a great story to tell. And because they're podcasters or they're writers or they're just people I know and, um so i think that's one thing without patting myself on the back too much i've sort of nailed i've had 16 well i've actually had um 18 guests on so right. a couple of episodes with two people on and i just all the guests have been great and i've loved speaking to them and yeah I'll, i'm taking a break now but i'll um get back into it probably sort of just sort of late summer i think probably now i'm just going to take okay. a little month or so off i was going to ask yeah when it's coming back that's good so yeah everybody should subscribe to that it's uh it's a good one i think as well like we were talking a bit off air as well i think there are Every team has its idiosyncrasies, doesn't it? And I think some of the mm. some of the stereotypes are often true about certain fan groups, etc. But um, it's just nice to kind of hear an objective kind of from the horse's mouth. This is what it's like to be a Chelsea fan, a Liverpool fan, an Ipswich fan, whoever it is. You know, it's it's a very interesting podcast, mate. Yeah, well, we were saying, yeah, I mean, off air that you know, football is global now. I think, especially with with social media, you know, there's so much kind of abuse hurling around. You know, your club's rubbish. You now your club's rubbish. You now your captain's an idiot. You now your captain's an idiot. And you know, we are, we we build views of each club's fan base and 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 stuff. And then what you realise, what you probably what everyone knows already, but they don't admit to themselves, is that we're all the same essentially. Mm. You know, and we support. You know, I could quite easily have been an Arsenal fan, for instance, because I've got a lot of cousins who are Arsenal fans, and, and my older cousin was kind of trying to make me an Arsenal fan. But I support Liverpool because my dad did. Right. But if I was, if I supported Arsenal, I'd be exactly probably the same human being I am now. But I'd support Arsenal, and Liverpool fans would probably think I'm an idiot, and I think Liverpool fans are idiots because <laughs> you just become very tribal. But once you talk to fans of other clubs, ninety percent, yeah, every base, every fan base has a few, you know, few knobheads. But if you talk to the majority of fans. From other clubs just have a chat with them as i as i'm doing with the podcast but even if you just did over a pint or whatever you think oh, they're just like me they get as pessimistic as i do they get as wildly optimistic as i do they feel the same about you know certain issues and stuff and i think actually just you know what what was kind of really lovely quite recently coming out of a hor- horrible event horrible moment was the whole super league stuff yeah yeah where you know i think I think the, a lot of outsiders would have thought, oh, yeah, I bet Liverpool, Chelsea, City, United, Arsenal fans, I bet they love the idea of the Super League. And what everyone saw was, no, we all, 90% of us hated the idea. Like, mm. you know, okay, we might, we might support elite clubs, but we don't have sort of elite mentalities. We don't think we're better than anyone else. We want to compete as, 
with the West Ham's and with the Aston Villas and with the Southamptons, you know, yeah, yeah. that's my football heritage. They're the teams I grew up watch, watching Liverpool play and the grounds I've been to. I don't want to play Real Madrid twice a week. I want to play uh, twice a season. I want to play Southampton twice a season. I want to be yeah. part of the English Premier League, the English top division, whatever it may be called, the first division Premier League. And, and yeah, you know, okay, we have a, yeah, we have a monetary advantage over a lot of these clubs, but uh, so we do stand out in that sense, but I just I don't see myself any better than a Southampton fan or a you know or a Wimbledon fan or a you know Lincoln fan. You know, yeah. I'm so proud to be a fan of a club in England. I don't want to be part of some breakaway European league. I don't see myself like that. And most fans of those six clubs feel the same, and that was lovely to see during that period. That, that mad 48 hours we had, we had it last month or whatever it was. People that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, it's Gordon from the Tartan Scarf. I am sure you're absolutely loving Craig's Football Kit Memories podcast. Now, Craig has kindly given me the opportunity to drop in and promote my upcoming episodes of the Tartan Scarf podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. I've got three really good interviews lined up, speaking to experts on Scotland's Euro 2020 opponents, 
Czech Republic, Croatia, and of course, England. It's going to be a good summer ahead. I would love it if you would come over and join us. But for now, back to Craig and the show. I ask everybody the same question on the podcast. What do football shirts mean to you? It's a good question. Um, I think when I was a kid, like a lot of people, when I was a kid, um, I loved them. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I was obsessed with them or anything, but they, um, you know, everyone sort of remembers their first kit and stuff. And I think when you're a kid, it's the way you immediately connect with your club is, you know, I was, I was, I, I started one Liverpool when I was eight years old. Right. I was from North London. I was now away from me getting up to Anfield. You know, like my, my dad was my dad was Liverpool fan. I spoiled Liverpool because my dad, but he was he was never going to take me to Anfield. Um, I couldn't go on my own, obviously, and I'd watch him on telly. But in terms so in terms of connecting with the club, I didn't have the connection of being a match girl. I didn't go to my first game until I was eleven in nineteen ninety two, and that was with my uncle. Um, and I'm not from the city and stuff. So the way I connected with the club was to buy a shirt. And I remember getting my first Liverpool shirt. It was that classic um, candy one with the sort of white flex on it. Yeah, yeah. The one we won the league title in 1990. Um, and it was like, yeah, it was connecting with the club. And it, and it was it was feeling sort of connected to the players because that's the shirt John Barnes wore. That was the shirt Ian Rush wore. That was the shirt Alan Hansen wore, whatever. And so I felt connected to the team. Um and yeah, just the aesthetic of shirts. I mean, football shirts are beautiful. Like, mm. you know, they're sort of amazing. Like, you know, they're not seen as items of fashion. But if you think about it, it's absolutely remarkable that in England alone, there's 92 tops that are all sort of different and unique and have patterns on them and really interesting badges on them yeah. and different sort of style collars on them. I mean, I'm not a fashionista at all, but, you know, you can make an argument that, football tops are as a collection of items are as fashion interesting from a fashion point of view as anything you'd see at the London fashion show you know they're just sort of utterly fascinating mm. and I think every people from different eras say oh no the tops during my childhood and my adolescent years were better were the best uh you know people from the 70s you know think the simplicity of that era theirs was the best and people from the 90s like myself probably think you know we've got the best ones people who are 20 now think nah, they've never been better than they are now <laughs> but the universal thing is they're always kind of great and even the bad ones are great like the yeah. bad that we you know we remember the really awful football you know tops like that chelsea gray and orange one from the sort yeah. of mid 90s and and uh, you know united's famous gray one and things like that and Again, it's kind of a way of stitching football together. Like Brazil will always, unless they do something absolutely mental, they will always wear yellow and green. Mm. And so it's kind of, you know, in a way we're all traditionalists and football sparks a lot of nostalgia in us. And, you know, when we think about football, we don't, you know, we sort of, I, I'm very much like this. I think about the past as much as I do the present or the future and the, and the games I've seen and the memories I've, I've had. And the way you connect the past, to the present and the future is through kits often. So Brazil wore a yellow and green top when I first saw them play in, in, the, in 1990 and in 2021 they're still wearing yellow and green top and there's something brilliant about that that yeah. life changes and there's things can be erratic and wild and unpredictable but Brazil will always wear a yellow and green top and there's something really reassuring and it allows you to connect with those wonderful memories you had when you were a kid as well yeah. so yeah quite a long-winded answer but what I should say is um to sort of be a, a, a slight downer on football kids. It's not really a downer, it's just a personal thing. I haven't worn a football shirt 
since 2006, I think. Wow. Uh, well, I wear it when I play. Well, I wear it when I play seven aside on Thursday. But I haven't bought a Liverpool shirt since 2006. Right. And I'm 40 now, and I just think I'm too old for football shirts. And I do think men of a certain age. I'm not saying don't buy one, but if you look a certain way, uh, physically. Um, I think you can look a bit daft wearing a football shirt. And I think you get to a certain age where you just got to stop. And I very much see myself in, in that mould. So I don't wear them anymore unless I'm playing I say seven. So I don't wear them casually at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, when I was a kid, yeah, I loved them. I used to buy, yeah, every sort of, every new Liverpool shirt. At that time in the 90s, it was every two years, obviously. Mm. Um, it sort of last, well, probably quite a long time, probably 15 years, maybe longer. It's because, you know, it was a new top every year. But when yeah. I was a kid, it was every two years. And yeah, whenever Liverpool had a new top, I'd, uh, yeah, I'd get one. Nice, nice. Well, look, let, let's talk about your first choice that you've chosen today. So this is the Cameroon home shirt by Adidas. It's worn at Italian 90 by Mr. Roger Miller. How come did you pick this it one? Is. Yeah, so well, one thing I've done is, so you asked me to pick three, three kits to talk about. Hmm. And I picked one from right at the start of the 90s, one from the bang middle of the 90s, and one right at the end of the 90s. Nice. And that's partly because I absolutely love the 90s. Um, anyone who follows me on Twitter will see me talk about it at least twice, three times a week. <laughs> I just think it's the greatest decade of all time. Uh, and I am biased because it's a decade when I was you know, an adolescent and obviously your adolescent years, your best years and your know, teenage years, your most exciting years. But I do genuinely think the 90s were an amazing time, especially for football. So I kind of almost wanted to pay tribute to, to that decade. But the Cameroon one does have a meaning for me as well, because it was, as I mentioned earlier, it was my first World Cup. Mm -hmm. I was eight years old when, when Italian 90 happened. Um, you know, I was just getting into football then. 89, I'd considered my sort of launch year as a football fan. That was when I really first got into football. So 90, you know, 90 obviously came very the World Cup came very soon after I sort of first got into football. Um, and the first game of the World Cup of that World Cup was Cameroon, Argentina at the San Siro, the opening game of that tournament. And you know, I was eight years old. And up to that point, I'd sort of just watched club football. I hadn't really watched international football. And and there was just something unbelievably exciting about that game. Like the colours, it was just they just seemed so different. I mean, the, the TV had a sort of hue about it. A sort of, it was a summer and it was Milan and the pictures were, they just looked a different to, you know, watching Derby versus um, another team, Aston Villa yeah. on, you know, ITV, you know, at four o'clock on a cold Tuesday, <laughs> Sunday in, you know, February 1989 or whatever, you know, the big match or whatever. It looked completely different. And what stood out of that game in terms of the kits? I mean, Argentina were playing, obviously, and they were the world champions. And I was excited about seeing Maradona, but my eyes were transfixed by Cameroon. Their kit was just unbelievable. I mean, it was green... Yeah. Uh, green shirt, um, yellow shorts and red socks. I think that's right. Red yeah, shorts, all my red shorts. Yeah, that's right. Red, sorry, red shorts and yellow socks. Really bright, vivid colours. There was no team in England wearing green, red, and yellow, and they just stood out. Uh, and obviously, they they carved out an incredible victory as well. You know, probably still the, the biggest shock in World Cup history. You know, they're a team of journeymen from the second mate essentially a team of journeymen from the second division of French football. Yeah. When they came to the World Cup, they, they'd been fighting, basically. There was a lot of internal divisions in that team. They were playing the best international team in the world with the best player in the world. And they won. Yeah. Uh, for, you know, Francois Amambique getting that, that goal, I think, late in the second half or midway in the second half. Um, and I was just absolutely... That was like the moment... And I wrote an article about this for The Guardian last year. That was a moment when I well and truly fell in love with football. Like, I loved it, but it just took it to another level. 
yeah. and I became obsessed with the sport and, and wanting to watch it as much as possible. And that Cameroon shirt is just, it just, the, it just stands out in my mind. I mean, it was that sort of shimmering green, that massive lion on a uh, badge, that really simple little Adidas um, symbol on one side, very small. I was looking at it again today before we spoke. It's like a tiny, you can barely see yeah. it, but it was Adidas. Um, and so, yeah, it was a vivid nature, the colours, it was what it represented at the time, this huge moment for me, this huge moment in the World Cup history. Um, and I think there's just, I think the thing about, the, I don't know what you think, uh, you probably spoke to a lot of people about kits from that World Cup, I'm guessing, but yeah. it was kind of beautiful simplicity to kits for that World Cup. They all, I mean, the, it was a bit wild, that shirt, because of the big lion and a few sort of white strips across the shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, it was also quite simple as well, but it had a sort of simple uniqueness, like, I think one World Cup that sticks out in my mind is 2002, where right. I think Nike did a lot of the kits and they all looked the same. They were literally the same style, but they were a different color. Template, yeah. So they weren't, yeah, they exactly had a template design. And I think that's become quite common in modern football. But in 1990, all the kits were different and they all, so they all looked quite unique, but they had this sort of simple beauty to them. So the, the Italy one was just gorgeous. Again, sort of that shimmering blue. England shirt, obviously, absolutely iconic, but again, quite simple, just kind of white with the badge. Um, Germany's was probably the most kind of extravagant with the kind of the stripes going across the middle. And, you know, one, for me, one of the greatest international kits of all time. But like Argentina was just blue and white, Brazil was yellow. They all looked different, but they all had a sort of beautiful simplicity to it. And sort of Cameroon's had that, although it was also kind of mad with the big line as well. But um, yeah, just, yeah, first World Cup, amazing first game, amazing sort of colour and texture to that game which sticks in my mind and Cameron's kit was key to that and yeah all sort of goes into the melting pot for, for just to make that for me one of the most memorable yeah kits of all time. Love it mate kicking off the 90s with a big one I like it. So we move on to your second choice now you, you, there could have been a number of Liverpool shirts you picked as a Liverpool fan but this is one you've chosen this is the home shirt from the 95 to 96 season one with a big kind of cricket collar people call yeah. it. How yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, so it's, um, I sort of, again, on Twitter, I joked recently that it's the greatest Liverpool kit of all time. It's tongue-in-cheek, really. I think, for me, my favourite is probably that one I mentioned earlier, the, the, the one from 1990, my first ever yeah. Liverpool kit, the one with the white flex, the, can, the candy one. Yeah. Um, I think just iconic, great top. But I picked this one, again, because I wanted to do that sort of staggering 90s thing. But also, I do genuinely think it's a great top as well. So, as you said, it's the one that's got the big, fat, white cricket collar. Yeah. Uh, it's the one when the famous 4-3 against Newcastle, Collie Moore closing in that game. That's It's yeah. that top if anyone kind of want to, want to visualise it. So it's got the big fat white cricket collar. It's got an amazing badge, really kind of uh, quite sort of detailed embroidered badge, quite big as well. Yeah. It's Adidas, so it's got the three stripes. It's kind of got a sort of netted feel to the kit, which is quite lovely. It's really thick. The material's really sort of rich. Uh, rich. It's got rich redness to it, quite thick, dark redness. Dark red. And I always think Liverpool kits are a dark red look really quite stunning I think sometimes and um, and the material's really thick as well quite luxurious as well so it's just it's just aesthetically a great top it's actually not a great top to wear <laughs> like, it's all right to wear casually but to play football in it I, I always thought it must be quite heavy on the players but I mean, they, but obviously they played in it um, but yeah so it's a great top it's part it was worn by one of my favorite Liverpool teams they weren't the best by any means but they were that sort of swaggering Roy Evans team of the mid-90s the Fowler, Collymore, McManaman team, Barnes and Redknapp in midfield. The team that yeah beat Newcastle 4-3. They were a floor team defensively, but going forward, they're absolutely amazing. Yeah. Uh, I was 14 um, 
when when that team was around and yeah i love being 14 you know i love being a teenager yeah. uh, and they wore it um during what i think is the greatest premier league season of all time as well and what, like one of the greatest football english you know people want to talk about i'm not trying to say football started in 90 uh, 992 and all that like, yeah. I, I think genuinely one of the greatest english football seasons of all time which is the 95 96 season so that's the season of keegan's rant uh, the fourth three uh, and just sort of loads of really great foreign players being in the Premier League. You know, it was that wave of foreign talent. They were, they were, it was sort of when they were at their sort of most exciting and new. So you had like the likes of King Clancy and Tony Yaboa, Burkham, I think, had just arrived in England. Canton yeah. hadn't been there long. Klinsman had been there for about a year. So football was just so exciting. And that season, obviously, was so dramatic with what happened to Newcastle. I mean, I was gutted as a Liverpool fan to see Man United win the, win the league. But... As a season, it was amazing. And that was a season full of really great kits as well. Yeah, yeah. So you had the Liverpool one, which I just mentioned. And you had Newcastle's Brown L one, which, you know, the one they blew the 12-point lead in. Blackburn's one, the McEwen's Lager one, which I think is great. Mm. Leeds with their Thistle Hotels one, which I thought was really sort of like a retro kit and really stylish and really good. City had a great one. Uh, if you, you know, imagine, there's a picture of King Clancy in it, that Man City, a light blue one with brother across it. Yeah. Forest had that Labatt's one, which I thought was quite good as well, sort of black on the sleeves. Yeah. And, and West Ham, they didn't have a nice top, but they had Dagging the Motors as their sponsor, which I thought was pretty cool <laughs> as well. And even Man United's shirt was pretty, was, you know, begrudgingly, you have to say, was, was pretty good as well. Yeah. So, yeah, it was just a really exciting time. It was an incredible season. I was 14, which was a great age. And aesthetically, it was, yeah, a great top. And it was worn by, yeah, one of my favourite Liverpool teams. So, yeah, that's what it's in. Nice, nice. So we're in the 90s then, your third choice. It kind of rounds off the decade nicely. I like the kind of thinking you put behind this. So this is the AC Milan home shirt from the 98-99 season. Uh, it's a title-winning shirt, right? Yeah, they won the league in it, yeah. And how could you yeah, so Yeah, so this one is has quite a specific element to it. So, um, yeah, Milan, first of all, obviously one of the most iconic shirts, you know, of all time, the black and red stripes. I grew up, as I said, watching football in the late 80s, early 90s, and they were, at that time, the best team on the planet, club team on the planet, obviously yeah. Bullet, Van Basten, Rijkaard. And I would say the shirts from that period are the best Milan shirts of all time. You know, the ones worn by that team, uh, just amazing. But the 98-99 shirt, the reason I picked that, partly, again, because it's late 90s, so I get the whole sort of 90s stagger, but actually, I do have a very personal reason, is I turned 18 in March 1999, Right. And mum and dad threw a bit of a family party for me and I had my uncles and aunts come around and give me presents. And I got a fair bit of birthday money, as you do. And as the money came in, you know, it's lovely, crisp £10 notes. Yeah. I decided immediately that I was going to spend it on a football shirt. Okay. And specifically a foreign, a European football shirt. Because I had Liverpool shirts, but I never bought a non-Liverpool shirt before. And I wanted a European club top. Yeah. Uh, and I had two in mind. And it was that Milan shirt, because I sort of loved, you know, the Milan shirt, just the, the I wasn't a Milan fan or anything, but just the aesthetics of it, the red and black. And yeah. that, and I'll come on to the specifics of the kit in a second, but that season, so the 98-99 season, they had a lovely top. And the other one that was between that and another one, and you, you may well remember this, you may have talked about it on the podcast, was Real Madrid had a really nice shirt that season. It was um, obviously white, but it was kind of quite shiny white. It was quite sort of, uh, had a bit of shimmer to it. Um, and sort of the team that would have been sort of like Roberto, Carlos, Redondo, that sort of team, um, Hierro, Morientes, that sort of team, I'm guessing, uh, Guti. And it was between that and the Milan shirt. And I remember going to like a sports shop near me, took my money with me one Saturday afternoon. It was going to be Milan or Real Madrid. Yeah. 
And I got in the shop and I knew they had both tops because it was like a big, big sort of outlet, big sports outlet, uh, sports clothes outlet. And um, yeah, I ultimately picked the Milan one. Right. And yeah, it's a great top. It's a lovely, lovely shirt. So again, obviously red and black stripes. It's got the classic Milan badge. And I'm glad it has the actual badge because if it had been a top, if they'd been defending champions, it would have had the, you know, like the, they always have like the skin, like the attack. Yeah, exactly. And, which is which looks great as well. But this had the actual Milan badge because although they won the league that season, they weren't defending champions. So it's got the classic Milan badge. It's Adidas. It's got the Adidas sort of three stripe pyramid thing, three stripes on the on the on the shoulders. Opal across the middle, which is you know again I would say a bit of an iconic Milan uh, sponsor. Um, big thick collar in the late nineties. You know, big massive collars on top. So you know, like you could turn it. I remember turning it up and it like it was like hitting my ears like it was so high it got so high it was like banging the, not banging but you know flicking the bottom of my ears it was massive uh, so like similar to the Liverpool top in 95 96 it, it was quite heavy to wear it wasn't a, I, I wouldn't have thought the players particularly enjoyed wearing it but right. it certainly didn't ham, hamper that team because as you, as you said they won the league that year I mean it's a team kind of I've sort of got names of some of the players who played that season Maldini was there yeah Costa Carta Al, Albertini Leonardo Boban Beerhoff, George Weyer, all played in that team. Incredible. Uh, Zaccaroni was the manager. And yeah, it was their 16th Serie A title. So, yeah, so that's, it's a very personal thing. It was what I spent my 18th birthday money on. And a little sort of side story. Um, so I bought it and I loved it. And I wore it a few times, but as I said, I, it was quite heavy and it wasn't especially yeah. comfortable to wear. And my younger cousin came to my house one day. Uh, so this maybe would have been nine, at some point in 1999. And he saw sort of the shirt in the wardrobe or whatever. Uh, I don't know, or, or in my bedroom somewhere. And he was like, oh, that's that Milan shirt you bought. Can I have a look at it? I was like, yeah, yeah have a look at it. And, he's, and um, I think he had some sort of football tournament coming up. And he's like, oh, we, we need to wear a red shirt. And I haven't got one. Could I wear your Milan shirt? Because it's got a fair bit of red on it. Yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah, take it. Because I wasn't really wearing it. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, no, yeah, use it. And uh, so that was 1999. Uh, and I still haven't got it back. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, so what, what are we talking about? 11 years later, is that right? I think that's the thing my maths is right. Uh, no, 21 years later. 21 years later. Bloody hell, 21 years later. Oh, flies, mate. Uh, yeah, he still got it. My cousin still got it. I saw, like, we had a little joke about it quite recently, actually. Well, probably about a year ago or two years ago now. But um, yeah, he's like a dad now. He's like he's right. a kid then. He's got, he's got three kids and he's married and he's still got my Milan shirt. But he's like, I'll, I'll, he goes, uh, he said to me, I think it's my loft or something. Do you want it back? I was like, no, nah, just keep it. That's no, fine. Don't worry about it. Probably worth um, a few quid. You want to get that back? Yeah, maybe I should. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, so I, I wore it, I think, maybe two or three times. And then I gave it to my cousin. And, um, he, he's had it longer than I had. He's had it for 21 years and I had it for about <laughs> eight months or something. So yeah, but no, but a lovely top, a really, really cool top, I think. Lovely stuff, mate. Well, look, that's three absolutely amazing choices. Thanks so much. No worries. Yeah, mate, absolutely fantastic. So there's going to be a third series of fans coming up soon. People should subscribe and make sure they find out. Yeah, yeah, please do. Yeah, well, anyone who hasn't listened to it so far is uh, 16 episodes um, knocking about at the moment. So have a listen to those all with, as I said, great people, really interesting people talking really in great ways about their clubs, uh, why they support the clubs they do, a range of clubs covered. So that's sort of some of the big Premier League clubs like... Um, Arsenal, United, Chelsea, Liverpool, Everton as well. But then we've had some smaller clubs. Like I did a, an episode with a Berry fan, which was great. Um, obviously, they got expelled from the Football League in 2019. So he was really good on that. An Ipswich Town fan, a guy called Tony Cowards, who's a stand-up comedian. He was great on them. A Fiorentina fan from Stockport, which is quite an wow. interesting tale. 
yeah, a girl called Chloe Beresford, who's yeah, got really interesting backstory uh, from Stockport, sports for Urantina. Wow. Um, so yeah, a range of people, but yeah, taking a little break now and um, we're going to come back probably in July, I think. Nice one, Sashi. Thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed that. Fantastic, mate. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Love you. So there you have it. Massive thanks to Sashin for sharing his football kit memories with me. You can follow me at my own collection on Instagram. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Or get in touch via Twitter or email. Don't forget to follow Sashin too and also subscribe to his podcast fans. The music you heard was written by Eva Led. You can check out his music on his Bandcamp. There's links to everything I've mentioned in the notes section. And finally, thanks for listening. If you have enjoyed it, please do spread the word. Give me a follow on social and subscribe to Football Kit Memories on your podcast player of choice. And other than that, I'll catch you next time. <laughs>